Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Shane, I just want to say I am disgusted by the lack of judgment that you have evidenced in talking so freely to the media. I mean, okay, you are a member of the media, but whatever. I just want to say you're fired. Wow. This podcast has lost confidence in your leadership, Shane. Well, that makes two of us. It's because you, you're too independent. You're insistent on holding people accountable. We just can't have that. You, you filed phony reports and sent them to Congress. You know? Listen, fired. it's a lot going fired. on right now. Fired. You know what? And that's fine. And that's fine. But I've only been the acting podcast host for the past <laughs> four and a half years. For the entire so you can't actually of fire me. That's fine. But I'll take my leave. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Ready, Aim, Fire Everyone edition. Three of you are fired while we're at it. We're all fired. So many firings. Everybody is canceled. You guys, so many people got fired or removed or, you know, furloughed this week. I, it's, just, it's really very hard to keep track. But, you know, since we're all staying home, can anyone tell? Yeah, exactly. Like, how would you, it's going to, if a tree fell in the woods. If you're in, for, a former inspector general and along with 6.6 million other people, you're firing, filing no pun intended, your first time claim for unemployment benefits. It like rounds to zero. <laughs> Can you file for it? There's still federal employees, right? I mean, it's like Michael Horowitz just out of a job. It's a political appointment, right? He's confirmed by Congress. Well, not Horowitz, Atkinson. God, I can't even keep track of who got fired, you guys. It's, it's complicated because some have just been removed from their positions that are still government employees. Some have Oof. resigned. Some have been fired. It's it's tough to keep track, but isn't that kind of Trump's whole point in doing yeah, this? I'm not even sure he knows everybody, but we're going to try and get to the bottom of it today. I am here in the Bloomingdale studios, joined remotely by my friends, Ben Wittes, Mark Hoffman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. It's a, it's month two of quarantine. It hasn't been a month, but it's month two. Let's try and, like, you know, be positive about it. Woo! I feel like the longer I say it is, the faster it will be over, but that just may be me deluding myself. I, I think we should stop counting. Yeah, right. Exactly. Let's just stop <laughs> uh, the podcast this week. President Trump removes two independent inspectors general. I think it's just two, including the one at the center of his impeachment. The acting Navy secretary is out after he removed the captain of an aircraft carrier who complained that his sailors were at risk from the coronavirus. And despite health concerns, Wisconsin goes ahead with elections offering a possible test case for November. So let's start with the first slate of spir firings or removals or 
whatever they're called now. Uh, Michael Atkinson, who was the intelligence community inspector general, uh, Trump announced to Congress late Friday night, and I know it was late because I was up writing about it, uh, in the midst of the pandemic, he told Congress that he's removing Atkinson. Atkinson, listeners will remember, of course, uh, was the inspector general who alerted Congress to the fact that there was a whistleblower complaint against the president that he was unable to transmit to congressional committees. Uh, Trump also this week has announced he is removing Glenn Fine, who is Glenn Fine, I guess, is sort of like, isn't he kind of like the godfather of inspector generals? Inspectors well, general. he's he's kind of like the, uh, the chairman of the board. I mean, he was the longtime Justice Department inspector general uh, for many years, and he has been the acting inspector general at the Pentagon for quite a while. And he's sort of a revered figure in the inspector general community and a hated figure in the inspector general investigatee community. In the inspected general community. Exactly. The inspected inspected generals don't like him very much at all. Uh, Glenn Fine was the person who was going to be overseeing the $2 trillion stimulus package that Congress has this past uh, for relief from the coronavirus. That's no longer going to be the case. Trump has replaced him with an IG from the EPA. Not sure if that IG is acting or not. Uh, And also Trump has been attacking the IG for the Health and Human Services Department, Christy Grimm, who reported on coronavirus testing delays and equipment shortages at hospitals this week. And it was basically the first real independent critique of the government's uh, uh, or of the of the coronavirus uh, situation as it's playing out in hospitals and federal efforts to assist that. So, Ben, first, I want to come to you just as a basic matter. Why is Trump moving against these IGs now? Is it because the pandemic just offers him cover to do things he's wanted to do for a while? Or is there some other motivation, do you think? You know, I I think it's a little bit of, of a few things going on at the same time. One is, you know, as the scorpion said to the turtle after he stung him and the turtle said, why? It's because it's in his nature, right? He He's the kind of person who fires people for being independent in his administration. He's done that at all times in his presidential history, starting with Preet Bharara a few days after he took office. So why shouldn't he do it now? Um, The second reason is because he has some scores to settle with people, uh, i.e. Atkinson. He's been gunning for Atkinson, you know, for a long time. And in addition, there are people who he's, you know, concerned about the job they will do, right? So he's settling scores with Glenn Fine in advance to make sure he doesn't find things that he doesn't want. And he's dealing with Atkinson in retrospect to punish him for having found things that he didn't want. And then the third reason is because he can get away with it now. He's counting on the fact that we're all distracted, and we are. And by the way, we should be distracted by the coronavirus now. And so he's making a reptile brain kind of calculation that this is the time that he can get away with stuff because uh, no one's going to look too carefully. And if, you know, it's not like Republicans in Congress were going to be energetic about this anyway, but they're really going to be supine now. And so I think it's a concatenation of circumstances that all uh, lead him to think this is a good time to do a bunch of stuff that he was probably 
you know, as Sonny Corleone would say uh, that he's, or, or as Michael Corleone would say, this is a good day to settle all family business. And so he's, he's taking care of it. So I agree with everything Ben just said and would sort of echo, I think, the sentiment in the PC published on Lawfare about this yesterday, um, which is that even though everybody is distracted right now, um, this is a really big deal what's happening right now. And that, yes, Trump is acting in his own, in his sort of in his primal nature. Yes, this is about capitalizing on a moment of distraction. Um, but it also is the collapse and the total collapse of a really, really important checks and balances process um, that Trump has been assaulting sort of in, in a multi-prong attack throughout his administration. Um, so we need to sort of understand who inspector generals are. They're these sort of quasi-independent executive branch officials. And so the idea is Congress creates this person who has some independent authorities, independent uh, reporting requirements, but houses them within the executive branch and and they're technically political appointees who serve at the pleasure of the president. And that's to allow executive control and for the ultimate mechanism here to be political accountability, right? Uh, Inspectors general who are, you know, a little bit independent, but not too independent, kind of like a special counsel. Right. And what's supposed to function as a really important check against presidents firing inspector, the inspector general is political pressure that he'll get in all kinds of trouble. They'll, They'll pay a political cost if he does it for illegitimate purposes. The other thing that's supposed to be acting as a check and balance here is these are supposed to be confirmed officials, meaning that not only does the president have to get an inspector general through the confirmation process, choose someone who has the confidence of the Congress, the president should know that if he fires someone, he's going to have to go through a second confirmation process and get somebody else in there who he might not like as well. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing acting on acting on acting. Right. People who were formerly in acting roles now moving into acting inspector general's roles who are right. It's it's this like weird shell game. And we all know that the president has no intention of nominating anyone to this position. And so all of the incentives around the, the advice and consent process are completely gone. And all of the other sort of checks and balances that Congress might have in terms of investigation, oversight, using its appropriation powers to sort of impose these costs, Republicans have no political interest in doing so. And and the Democrats are just too overwhelmed at this point and don't control both houses of Congress. And so this really is an incredibly dangerous moment in which Trump is really proving that he can get away with just about anything. And this moment of chaos created by the pandemic is sort of a final ingredient, the final missing ingredient of a completely overwhelmed media. And so I don't, I think one, we're going to see more inspectors general being fired in the coming days. There's already been some reports about the president uh, considering firing every inspector general who was appointed in the Obama administration really would be an incredible abuse. The dismissals we've already seen are incredible abuses. I also think we might start seeing the president ramp up other types of abuses that might fall in this category, including things like really, really abusive pardons, things that he is plainly allowed to do or plainly within his power, and that there's supposed to be this political check and this congressional check that just everybody knows is not going to be able to function right now. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, Susan's analysis is comprehensive and thorough, and I agree with every word she said. I just wanted to add that to me, it really drives home once again that this degree of stonewalling, this not just expectation, but demand insistence on unaccountable exercise of authority, unaccountable and unconstrained. This is what Trump has expected from the moment he took office. He articulated over and over that this was his expectation. And he and the people who serve him have worked assiduously to find ways in policy zone after policy zone, process after process, to exercise unconstrained, unaccountable authority. And to me, what this drives home is that all of those checks that Susan just described ultimately rely on the political will of actors, mainly at the end of the day, Congress, to exercise those checks. And and a lot of the other checks are uh, at least in principle, you know, statutory or whatever, but the president ignores them and and no one does anything about it. That makes them effectively normative and the guardrails don't work. And so it, to me, says two things. Number one, Trump was always this way. He's just been looking for opportunities to get away with acting this way. And number two, there is a lot about our system that we thought we could rely on that we can't. Neither of these two things are new, but you know what happened this week just drives it all home again. One thing that seems especially alarming to me about removing Glenn Fine as the inspector general for this whole massive $2 trillion stimulus package is that this, I mean, this is just billions and billions and billions of dollars. That no, is trillions going to have and to be, trillions to be precise. Well, truly the two trillions, but hundreds of billion dollars dollars in different pools of money that is going to be pushed out really fast. I mean, one story I've been working on this week, there's $100 billion set aside to basically float hospital systems that are losing just huge amounts of money because they've canceled all elective surgeries in order to treat more coronavirus patients. You know, $30 billion is going out this week. There's another maybe 50, another $34 billion going out next week. Um, it's just a huge amount of money. And it seems to me that without some kind of mechanism of oversight, you're putting a heck of a lot of onus on the recipients of those funds or on the trade associations that represent them to try and you know signal if it's not working properly or if they think there are some kind of shenanigans, maybe they wouldn't even know about it. I mean, to, to just remove that person right away, granted, he did replace him with someone else, but Glenn Fine obviously is known as an assiduous investigator. What does that say about, you know, how the Trump administration intends to to use these funds? There's already concern that it will become, you know, some kind of slush fund for corporations or, or goodie bags for political for uh, you know, political favors. I don't know that this does anything to disabuse people of that notion. No. In fact, I, I look, I think the thing that it says loud and clear is that whatever they're going to do, and they probably don't even know yet themselves, they don't want to have a particularly aggressive IG leading a team of other IGs sniffing around about it. And, uh, you know, that's understandable. Accountability sucks if you're a criminal. And, you know, setting up a system in which 
you're going to have people looking over your shoulders while you distribute trillions of dollars is, you know, shall we say inconvenient and you'd rather not have it. So I actually kind of understand where they're coming from about that, given their propensity to corruption. But I say as a citizen and somebody who, you know, actually believes in those, you know, trivial things like accountability and oversight, that, you know, the idea that all of this relief money should be spent at Trump organization properties is not all that appealing to me. And the idea that you should have uh, experienced investigators under the statute that Congress passed to appropriate this money, actually monitoring how it's used, uh, seems like a good government matter. And the idea of preemptively firing some of them to make sure that the the remainder are uh, relatively quiescent and sufficiently intimidated and know your power is, you know, as Susan said, a gross abuse. And, you know, I, I just don't know, like, I'd like to see it a different way, but I just think it's naive to at this point. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, other firings uh, that we learned about this week. Uh, really kind of a, I don't think there's anything other say it, other way to say it than a, a, a fiasco going on at the Navy right now. Uh, for listeners who aren't up to speed on this, uh, Captain Navy Captain Brett Crozier, who is the captain of the USS Theodore Roosevelt, which is an aircraft carrier that was in the Western Pacific, w- wrote a letter uh, on an unclassified channel, an email really, to about 25 people, basically colleagues, talking about how he was gravely concerned about coronavirus spreading on his ship. Uh, I think at the time, a number of sailors had tested positive. Um, If you've ever been on uh, a ship or of any kind, much less an aircraft carrier, social distancing, a little hard, especially with a crew of 4,000 people. Eventually, this email not uh, unexpectedly got leaked to the press, uh, and there was hell to pay for Captain Crozier, the acting Navy secretary, acting, acting like a Navy secretary, I guess, Thomas uh, Modley, Uh, condemned his remarks, removed him, saying he had lost the confidence of the Navy secretary. Modley then went to Guam and delivered an address over the PA to these sailors, which of course was recorded and leaked to the media, uh, in which he told sailors never to take their complaints to the press because we have an agenda and we're not there to help them. You know, Tammy, as an initial matter, it seems pretty amazing that Modley didn't think his own remarks would be leaked to the media. Uh, this profanity-laced diatribe that he had against uh, Captain Crozier, of course, it leaked immediately. Um, so I'm curious, what do you think he was up to there, You know, both in, f- in, in removing the captain, essentially firing him, but then going out and uh, uh, speaking his mind publicly to 4,000 people about why he did it? Okay, so I think there are three things here. One is, why did he fire Captain Crozier? The second is, why did he fly to Guam to talk to these soldiers, to these sailors? Forgive me, guys. Uh, and, And the third is, why did he say what he said? So let me start with the third. I mean, this address was he got on the PA, spoke to the the sailors who have been in port Uh, on this carrier, slowly infected and exposed sailors have been taken off the ship and put into quarantine. 
Um, but it's all been happening much more slowly than anybody wanted it to. And so there was a lot of anxiety amongst the sailors, a lot of anxiety amongst the families. And then he fires their beloved captain <laughs> and he goes out there and he says to them, look, I fired him because he went outside the chain of command, CC'd too many people on this email. So he must have known it was go it was going to go to the media. And that means he meant for it to go to the media. And that's a betrayal. It's a crappy thing to do. And he's either naive or stupid to have done it. And he used those words, naive or stupid. Yeah, naive or mm -hmm. stupid. And so why did he talk that way? Well, we have discussed on this show before the way people working in the Trump administration who want to keep their jobs in the face of a crisis, the way they sometimes speak in public in the manner, in a Trumpian manner, you know, uh, the Brett Kavanaugh, you know, hearing probably the most egregious example, I think Modley was trying to pull a Trump. He was trying to be straight talking, a little bit shocking, obstreperous, and super onboard defensive of the administration's action or really his action in firing the captain. Um, why did he go, you know, to the to speak to the sailors in person? Because this was a real crisis, and um, removing the captain may have been something that he thought the president wanted. And he therefore went ahead and did it quickly so that he didn't have to wait for the president to tell him to do it. Um, but he still had a, a nuclear powered aircraft carrier full of six sailors uh, and a readiness problem and an order problem that he had to address. And when you dig into the details of what happened here, it turns out that Number one, he and others in Captain Crozier's chain of command were well aware of the problem of the urgency, but there was a disagreement within the, the Navy about how to handle the situation. At the end of the day, Captain Crozier wanted them to move faster to get sick and exposed sailors off the carrier faster than they were moving. And in his letter, he said, we are not at war. Soldiers don't need to die. So he was putting the priority on the life of his sailors. And the Navy, or at least chunks of his chain of command, disagreed and felt that readiness was a priority. And if they took too many sailors off too quickly and didn't have a way to replace them, it would hurt the readiness of the fleet. So that was the disagreement. And Crozier, in writing that letter, in a way, did publicly air a disagreement inside the Navy. Um, so, you know, you can understand how his superiors took umbrage at that. Uh, but I think that the way Modley went about this backfired with his most important audience, the president. And I think that's because the president saw the video when Captain Crozier left the ship to resounding rounds of applause from all the sailors on all the decks. That's exactly the kind of adulation that President Trump dreams of. And he thought, this guy's a freaking hero. I can't be against him. And so he flipped on a dime and he threw his acting Navy secretary under the bus. That's what I think happened. Or under the ship, as it were. Uh, yeah, Overboard. Overboard. <laughs> there we go. Modley is now looking for a new job. Uh, Susan. 
Look, I mean, just to, to tie the segments together thematically, I, I do think it's worth noting why Modley is the acting Navy secretary in the first place. And that's because the former confirmed Navy secretary, Richard Spencer, was forced out following the Eddie Gallagher war crimes pardons, maybe for trying to broker a deal to allow him to keep his seal trident, maybe not, right? This, this huge sort of controversy kerfuffle that, by the way, we still haven't gotten the full story about what actually happened in all of that. So the only reason that Modley is in the acting secretary role in the first place is because of this tremendously dysfunctional thing, uh, you know, that occurred previously. You know, look, one thing that that really stood out to me was when Secretary of Defense Esper, uh, I I believe, went on uh, State of the Union with Jake Tapper, I guess, last Sunday at this point. Um, And whenever he was asked about this letter that Captain Crozier had written, um, he said he hadn't read it. And that's a little bit of an astonishing thing. It's a four-page letter of a captain of an aircraft carrier essentially begging for help. And the Secretary of Defense just like hasn't bothered to read it yet. And the the sort of the, the, what that says about the level of disorganization and incompetence and dysfunction that's going on right now is ultimately feeding, I think Tammy has sort of put her finger on it, this just atrocious optics issue, which is that you have this, you know, sort of moving viral video of of Crozier, you know, being cheered off his ship by his sailors. And here's somebody who's trying to, you know, save the lives and protect men and women who serve. And then you have the DOD sort of coming in and bigfooting in this way that really sends a message of just a disregard for sacrifice and service. And, uh, you know, especially for an administration that has been all too happy to sort of wrap itself in the flag and use use, uh, you know, sort of the armed forces and the men and women of the armed forces as, as just blatant political props, a real kind of F you. And, and I think Tammy's right whenever she says that Maudley's statement backfired with his most important audience, which is the president of the United States. But ordinarily, we would think of the most important obvi- audience for the secretary of the Navy acting or otherwise to be sailors on a ship. And so we are already just completely in the upside down. The other thing that's really striking here is ordinarily, if we were thinking about a global pandemic, we would be talking about the role the Department of Defense would be playing in actually supporting civilians. And so it is a little bit astonishing that the military, instead of being part of the solution, is just another dysfunctional facet of the problem. I suppose it's a cheap joke, but I'm going to make it anyway. The comparison between uh, the spread of the virus and the spread of vacancies and firings within the Trump administration. But I was really thinking as I was listening to the two of you talk just now, you know, that that Crozier's, you know, he was removed and then uh, Modley caught it from him and his acting status was caught from the prior, you know, guy who got it from the Gallagher thing. And, you know, we're like the way we talk about vacancies in this administration is not all that different from the way we talk about like a sort of overloaded hospital in New York where the healthcare workers are, you know, being stricken down one by one. So I'll just content myself with that perhaps somewhat off-color observation. Well, I'll make another off-color, uh, well, maybe a remark, or maybe I'll just quote 
the act former acting secretary's off color remarks because I think it's important that people understand that he didn't just go to this tr- the, the the carrier and trash their captain. Um, he sort of trashed the crew. Uh, in addition to you know saying you know don't you think for one second that this was the right thing for him to do? He said in uh, speaking about the virus, I'm just going to quote what he said. Everyone's scared about this thing, but I tell you something, if this ship was in combat and there were hypersonic missiles coming at it, you'd be pretty fucking scared too. And you can hear people yelling in the background of this recording, whoa, and he said, what? And he says, but you do your jobs and that's what I expect you to do. I mean, it's almost as if he's saying, quit your bitching about this little virus. There are scarier things out there that we that we train you to do. Maybe not the greatest management technique. Um, Tammy, go ahead. <laughs> no, definitely not the greatest management technique, um, but very, very Trumpian, right? Like quit whining. You know, if I were in your shoes, it's I would virus. be scared, right? It's a widow virus. It's just a widow virus. But I also, you know, I love the fact that if you believe what Modley told David Ignatius, that he fired Captain Crozier so that uh, the president would not intervene and tell him to fire Captain Crozier, Modley has now been fired for attempting to anticipate and carry out the president's will. And there is a, a kind of delicious irony in that. Well, the president famously does not like anyone telling him how he thinks or what he wants. So maybe that was Modley's first mistake. Um, Let's come back home here uh, for this last segment. Uh, Wisconsin, our friends in Wisconsin. I hope we have listeners up here in Wisconsin that you all are doing well. Uh, Dude, you have to say it right. It's Wisconsin. 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 (laughs) Oh, man, forget it. (laughs) Our neighbor to the north um, went ahead and held uh, its elections this week. Uh, There was, of course, the primary election for uh, president, but also uh, some important general election or important general election, including a state Supreme Court seat that was quite important. And both sides are really uh, uh, vying over. Um, So there's a long story, and I don't have all the time to go into the uh, dysfunctions of of partisan Wisconsin politics, Uh, but needless to say that there was a lot of fighting between Republicans and Democrats over whether this should even go forward. The governor, the Democratic governor there in the state, Tony Evers, had issued an order postponing the election for two months. Uh, The Wisconsin Supreme Court came in and sided with Republicans who said the governor didn't have the authority to reschedule the race. On his own, there was a whole fight over how to use, uh, maybe to use absentee ballots or to whether, whether mail-in voting should should become a part of this. And the result was the election went ahead as planned. I think it's the only state so far uh, during the pandemic that has not postponed at least the primary vote. Uh, and you had images of people lined up, socially distanced, wearing their masks, waiting to go into polls. Uh, we had heard uh, reports that in some cases, uh, the poll workers might not even be showing up, that you know, potentially dozens and dozens of polls wouldn't even, polling places wouldn't even be open, uh, raising questions of why this was going forward. So putting the politics of the state aside, we could have a whole other segment about that. This is a little bit, I think, Susan, uh, a canary in the coal mine kind of moment, presuming that the coronavirus is seasonal. Dr. Anthony Fauci has been talking about this coming back in the fall. It could be coming back in November. We could be looking at another surge of cases right around the time of the presidential election. 
so what kind of lessons should we be drawing from Wisconsin and, and, and how should we be thinking about how to prepare for an election in November when these same kinds of risks may be facing voters? Yeah, I, I think this is definitely sort of a, a harbing, harbinger for what might come in November and a reason to be really, really concerned. So not just because of sort of the machinations within Wisconsin and with the Wisconsin uh, State Supreme Court, which is a conservative controlled court, but also the intervention of the United States Supreme Court and what it might mean for if these issues do arise related to November. So essentially the issue that the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on on Monday was about whether or not uh, the deadline for absentee voting should be extended. And so essentially what happened is there's already the ability to request an absentee ballot and, and essentially vote by mail. Um, millions more people availed themselves of this opportunity in the final weeks. That overwhelmed Wisconsin's system for distributing those ballots. There was a huge backlog. Millions of people who had who had requested ballots in a timely manner did not receive them in time to fill them out and get them back by the deadline, right? So through no fault of their own, essentially are being disenfranchised. And so the question before the the United States Supreme Court was this sort of really narrow technical issue of is it within the jurisdiction of a federal judge to uh, you know to allow this sort of this this deadline to be extended or does that fundamentally alter the nature such that it's sort of it's non-justiciable sort of the, the conservatives in the court really hung their hat on this narrow technicalities um you know but the the bottom line is what the what the outcome was is that people had to decide between their health and safety and exercising their right to vote more, even more importantly, or as importantly, um, the vote in the United States Supreme Court, as with the Wisconsin Supreme Court, was done along purely partisan lines. It was a 5-4 vote with the conservatives and the majority and the liberals strongly dissenting. And I think that's why it's a real reason to be concerned about what might come in November, because this whether uh, valid or not, and, and I think it probably is a valid critique, is going to be critiqued as a partisan decision. It was a decision that was designed to benefit Republican electoral prospects in the state. And so as we see different states coming up with different potential solutions, it is going to create the appearance that the Supreme Court is making decisions based on people's ability, to, uh, about a people's ability to actually vote in ways that are political. And that creates permanent marks of illegitimacy on electoral outcomes. And if we if we sort of play this out in a worst case scenario in which we have a widespread resurgence around October and November, Thinking about the states in which this might become an issue, which are prominently going to be significant swing states controlled by Republicans, places like Florida, Wisconsin, Ohio, Arizona, even Georgia and Texas, Colorado, this could have really, really significant and serious consequences. And I think it's a pretty clear sign from the, from the, from the Supreme Court that, you know, this is good. They are going to rule in conservative favors. And, and, and the conservative majority has been less and less careful about sort of disguising what it's up to. And, and I think was really especially careless in, in, in this particular opinion, sort of the, um, the, the best intention 
intentions of the chief justice uh, notwithstanding. You know, that said, there, there is one solution to this, and that's that uh, it shows that litigating this after the fact isn't going to work. Litigating piecemeal state solutions isn't going to work. Democrats who want there to be sort of, you know, protecting electoral outcomes in November need to include provisions in the various stimulus bills that Republicans have to vote on now. If they don't provide for it now, there are going to be issues in November and it is going to be a create massive, massive problems. And and it's really surprising that the first round of stimulus you know, came and passed uh, without them taking this opportunity. And this should be a huge wake up call. Yeah, I mean, I'm less convinced that this is a matter of judicial malice than Susan is, but I actually don't think to me to me the onus of this falls on the Wisconsin political establishment. So I I think the governor first of all really screwed up when he insisted for weeks that he didn't have the power to move the election, only then to turn around and try to extend the deadline, and the. Republicans who control the legislature strike me as the real villains here because faced with an actual emergency that the the merits of which are really not in dispute that they are the key actors in moving in in resolving under Wisconsin law uh refuse to do it as best as I can tell for purely and overtly partisan reasons and So I think that puts both the Wisconsin state courts and the U.S. Supreme Court in a rather difficult situation when that happens. And I, without getting into the merits of the thing, I don't know that there was a way to resolve that that wasn't going to be highly controversial. And of course, it it does take two camps to split along party lines on courts, both at the state level and at the federal level. So I'm I'm less convinced that the problem here is with the courts than Susan is. I do think that the the big problem is that you have a presumably with the Wisconsin Republican legislators are not the only ones. And of course, Donald Trump is now beating this drum as well, who are against expanding voting by mail in an atmosphere of a of a pandemic, and that strikes me as indefensible. Um, vote by mail has virtues and vices as a general matter, but in the context of an environment in which it is not safe to vote in person for a lot of people, both for them and for poll workers and for the others around them, uh, it is simply crazy to uh, not as a legislative matter or an executive matter within a state relax the rules for for access to mail-in ballots. And, um, and so I do think I agree with Susan that there's going to be a reckoning for this in November if the spread of the virus is still a real risk uh, in large swaths of the country. And I, you know, I think putting voters in the in the in the situation where you know they're risking their lives by voting is really something we haven't done in this country since the 60s in the south and we shouldn't be reviving it now either for old people or for Wisconsin residents or for minority communities that are uh you know maybe particularly have this virus in particular concentration so i think it's just a disgraceful thing i'm not sure i would 
put it quite so much on the courts as Susan does. I think there's also, I mean, two points. First, just very quickly, the Wisconsin Supreme Court is elected. Okay. Elected courts have a strong political valence. They do in Wisconsin, just like the legislature. And so I I think that's one important fact to hang on to as we consider the Wisconsin case. But I'm actually more concerned about the way what happened in Wisconsin has completely turned the valence of this discussion about how to conduct an election in the era of coronavirus on its head. When Congress passed the pandemic response just a couple weeks ago, they included not enough funding, but some funding, several hundred million dollars for states to begin to prepare expanded options for absentee balloting for November in anticipation of coronavirus being a continued problem for voters' access to the polls. And that's just logical, because if you're going to have a lot more ballots mailed in, whether they're absentees or you're allowing mail-in vote for everybody, you can't expect to count them by hand. You have to figure out how to get them to the right polling place. You might need to redesign the ballot so it can be scanned optically instead of counted by hand. There's prep work that states have to do, and Congress included money for that. That was something Republicans and Democrats agreed to. And now, all of a sudden, Republicans, the more they've thought about this, the more they've decided it's not in their political interest. And the Wisconsin case gave everybody in this polarized era it was like, you know, that little mote of dust that catalyzes the formation of a snowflake. Everybody glommed onto it and picked sides. And now it's a hyperpartisan issue. It shouldn't be access to voting shouldn't be a hyperpartisan issue when the barrier is disease that doesn't care whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. And I just find it astonishing. I mean, I shouldn't because that's the hyperpartisan era we're in, but I find it astonishing and depressing that that's what has happened to something that really is just common sense. American elected officials have to figure out a way for Americans to keep electing their officials. All right. Let's keep on keeping on and move on to object lessons. Uh, Ben, why don't you go first? My object lesson is a mask that my son uh, has now made with a 3D printer he got interested late last week in the question of whether we could 3D print masks that could be used either in hospitals or in other uh, settings in which people might need them. And it turns out there's this remarkable community of people online who have been experimenting with perfecting and designing uh, 3D printed masks. And so we started experimenting with this, we meaning mostly he. And uh, two days ago, he printed his first full prototype of this mask, which uh, a picture of which I will put on the show page. And it is pretty remarkable. It's printed out of a, uh, not a, a rigid plastic, but a rubber-like substance. So it's very flexible it bonds with your face and it has a bracket in front into which you can put whatever filter you want, either a homemade one or uh, I suppose if you have access to better filters, professionally made filters, you can use one of those. 
And I was uh, fascinated by this. First of all, uh, how relatively easy it was for him to learn how to do these. And secondly, how really professional and quality the actual product was. And I don't think this is going to solve our PPE shortage, but I was really impressed at the cost of the devices. The the 3D printer in question and all the associated hardware was less than $300. And I actually wonder if part of the answer for non-hospital-based stuff actually could involve a certain number of people producing these for friends, family, and nonprofit organizations who need them. Uh, yeah, it's been kind of an amazing community that's popped up uh, using 3D printing for all kinds of things, uh, including some people wondering if you could make ventilators out of them, small ventilators anyway. Um, Susan, what's your object? My object lesson is Legos. Mm-hmm. In the Hennessy household, we have a five-year-old who is a Lego super fan, and I haven't really partaken in the Lego building, but because we have so much more time at home and so much more of a desperate need to entertain our children for 20 minutes of silence, please, dear God, I have started building Lego sets with him. Guys, better than Xanax, better than guzzling half a bottle of wine, although you can combine both at the same time. (laughs) Lego building, according to the instructions, is like the most calming, therapeutic thing. And he doesn't really like to follow the instructions. So what he likes is for me to build the kit as instructed. He plays with it and then he puts it all in a bin so then he can build his own creative Lego sets. So I have produced my own dream man in this regard who will let me build Legos in peace. And this is how I am coping. And everybody else should go buy Lego sets and do this. You will. And what is me. the coolest Lego set you have built? Is it uh, a bottle we, of wine? We built a TIE fighter. It's mostly been Star Wars themed. But I did get him a little NASA uh, NASA space shuttle that will be in his Easter basket that I am very much looking forward to. Wow! 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 I you know I've actually tried myself as a child to to make Legos, uh, but like your son, I was not interested in any of the ones that came with instructions. And I just lost patience for it. Maybe it's time to try it again. Doesn't want to follow the rules. <laughs> That's me. You know me. That's why he got fired. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's That's why I'm acting like a podcast host now. Um, so my object, uh, we have some new neighbors here in our house. Uh, I went out on the uh, our back deck this past weekend, which is my first time really being out there to kind of get some flower pots and some other things set up for the nice weather. Uh, and I looked in a cypress tree that we have potted out there, and I noticed something a little unusual, a bird's nest. <laughs> uh, and there was no bird in it, and I presumed that a bird must have put it there because it didn't look decorative. Uh, so when I went to peer inside, and there were four tiny uh, little bird's eggs. Uh, there, We think it might be robin's eggs. It's not entirely sure. Uh, Mama bird does fly away when I come onto the deck, but then she comes back and I can see her through the window and she hangs out when we're inside. So 
pretty soon we're going to have four new uh, little ones, I guess, hanging out on the deck. Uh, and the pandemic isolation just got a little bit more bearable, I think. So are they sweet. blue? The, the eggs are blue. And she looks like, the mom looks like she could be a robin. So I'm guessing it could be, or she could be a wren. But they, uh, they're they going to be very cute no matter what they are. How sweet. Spring has sprung. Nature finds a way. And we'll name them Shane, Tammy, Ben, and Susan. <laughs> if they all hatch. So you're going to be birdie daddies. Birdie daddies, exactly. Which I think just basically involves staying away. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which would be sounds to me like a perfectly sensible form of parenting. Uh, but that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can also find uh, Rational Security Eggs at easterbunnyiscoming.eggstore. And bird parenting guides about how bird you should do Legos. Lego sets that you can do with your baby birds. <laughs> what can the birds teach us about parenting? I'm going to write that book while I'm in quarantine. I've got the time. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You can, of course, find us on Facebook as well. When you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out. The audio engineer this week was Ian Enright. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump with his version of the Talking Heads classic, Burning Down the House. I like Good. it. Yeah, I like it. it. Yeah. He's even got like the boxy suit, like the, the Talking Heads guys, like David Byrne, like the Baroni style, although David Byrne's was more exaggerated. How did I get here? <laughs> I asked myself that at least twice a day. <laughs> Maybe Sophia Yang can tell me. On behalf of my good friends, the birds, and my good friends, Tamara Gotham Wittes, Ben Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week, and happy Passover for those who celebrate. Bye-bye. 